This is going to be counterintuitive for a former soldier who, who understands the importance of the operator, the warfighter. But actually, I'd like to see defense organizations start with some of the more boring tasks. You know, the AI works in some of these boring tasks, and these tend to be back office tasks that can automate efficiencies. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Uh, we've got another global conversation today. Uh, really excited. Was able to drag Rob from London out to here to come talk to us for this. Rob from Adarga has got an awesome background. Technology they're working on. The company's doing unbelievable work. So super excited to have you here. Share a little bit more about what you're working on. And uh, let's talk a little international collaboration. Well, Tyler, hey, great to be here. And thanks for, you know, I'm really excited about this. Uh, this, this was long overdue. Way overdue. So I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a while know a bunch of your story and sort of what you're working on. Give the people a taste of sort of who's Rob, how'd you get here? What are you working on at Adarga? Why? Kind of give them the, the once over the world. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I'm the CEO and founder of a British business called Adarga. Uh, and I guess we're quite unique in that we're a software company, uh, really trying to redefine uh, the category of what I would call information intelligence. Uh, and what do I mean by that? You know, we're really trying to help our customers uh, who quite uniquely, much like Second Front, are folk in defense and national security. So the users that use our software platform, which we call Vantage, are the analysts, uh, the decision makers, the planners, the researchers who are working on those missions and tasks where just the sheer volume and complexity of data is really bogging them down. And of course, you know that's not a problem unique to defense. It's a problem shared by all organizations around the world. It's a problem with my own inbox. Um, but the one thing now that the advent of new AI techniques uh, and processes is really offering the world is we can now take that volume, scale, and complexity issue and really start doing human-like tasks at just the speed uh, and comprehensiveness that is just beyond human ability alone. So some of that heavy lifting that goes on with intelligence analysts, you know, having to read a whole bunch of stuff, collate a whole bunch of stuff, make sense of it before they can recommend courses of action, decisions to commanders, and that historically has consumed 80, 90% of an analyst's time. We, we can now use artificial intelligence you know, in an AI-driven, a software-driven approach. We can now use our platform to help, the, to help flip and invert that. So they can spend 80 to 90% of their time actually getting to really good decisions. So that software currently is being used across the British military, used across other parts of government, and also used by commercial organizations that have the same challenge. You know, maybe these are organizations trying to make sense of uh, the geopolitical challenges that now exist uh, in our world. Maybe it didn't ever go away, but we've certainly been reminded of them recently. So that's really what we do. And um, this, is, this is something that I'm passionate about because I was very fortunate to spend just about a decade serving in the British military. I spent nearly all of that time actually working with US commanders in the, in the US military. Uh, so I feel that what we're doing is not only important for British military, British government, commercial organizations, but this is a capability that really needs to be used by our allies. And I know that's something that we've spent a lot of time talking about, about how do we get software? How do we get AI? How do we get this to be interoperable across alliances? So we're all benefiting from the aggregate effect of what AI can deliver. Yeah, and that was a, uh, 
the exact sort of segue I was going to make is as we think about increasing sort of the the productivity or the efficiency, and I'm you know probably not as precise on the on the right metric, but we're allowing sort of that analyst to do more thought work and more you know establishing sort of connectivity. I think there's a the immediate sort of value is probably one that's a little bit vertically integrated into whatever directorate or mission center or functional area they're focused on. How do we start to set conditions horizontally so that cross-organization, sort of cross-department, and then internationally, right? So cross-allies and partners were able to sort of build in some of that collaborative lattice. Where are you seeing progress? Where are you seeing opportunity? That's more than just words, maybe. You're, you're, you're quite right to start with productivity. You know, at its absolute root, what AI affords is, is really a, a massive efficiency gain. Uh, it can clean up some of those tasks that just take a long time to complete. And so there's, a, you know, there's, there's deep inefficiencies in all organizations. And of course, we know, in particular, within defense organizations, you know, there's too many people in that back office processing too much stuff. So AI can really help there. Um, but I just want to make the point here that, that this is off the charts productivity increase. You know, usually when we talk to economists, we talk about two to three, four percent gains of productivity technology. And of course, technology over the last century has offered this, you know, promise of productivity gain. And we haven't really ever really kind of banked that. This is what I really we should be so excited uh, about artificial intelligence. And certainly at this sort of, you know, this era change point that we're at is that this is kind of 20 times, 30 times increase in productivity. And if we take uh, examples within just the software development industry, you know, uh, kind of prompt uh, engineering with some of these tools is speeding up the engineer's job by, you know, they're doubling their productivity in a day. You take that and extrapolate that to, to all industries or sectors or businesses. You know, imagine just doing double what you can achieve in your day tomorrow. This is possible now in a way that it never, never was. So, you know, talking about efficiencies is boring, right? You want to talk about mission outcomes, effects, of course. But we're talking about off-the-chart efficiencies where when your advantage is your marginal speed. This is the advantage. This gives you that decision advantage, that information advantage. So yeah, at the moment, we're, we tend to be in the industry vertically focused because we have to fine tune these things to really work on the mission sets. We're working quite rightly for very demanding customers who have very exacting needs. You know, this is not recognizing a cat or helping me buy cinema tickets. This has got to work every time. And we've got to build that confidence from the model upwards with the users that they can trust this and it's responsibly built from, from, from everyone and zero upwards. So we do have to vertically focus some of the use cases. But software doesn't recognize boundaries. So we see this in the commercial sector. You know, I can turn up to an international organization and I can have my software deployed across their infrastructure within hours. Defense forces its own stovepipe sometimes. So actually there are no boundaries to the use of this software. And if you build this in the right way, your software should be able to expand, scale by its very design without any additional marginal effort across an entire organization. Now, that's where you get into the, the deep procurement issues that still kind of <laughs> exist within defense is that you tend to have these little penny packet organizations each doing their own thing, buying singular capabilities, when actually there needs to be someone in that organization going, hang on a sec, this could be applied across a whole range of tasks across my entire enterprise and really taking that enterprise-wide view that maybe a, maybe a commercial organization might take, like a large investment bank or a law firm, where the CIO can actually see across all the stovepipes uh, in a way that defense maybe hasn't quite quite resolved yet. It's a great sort of segue too into the the sort of customer profile. You know, you use U.S. Department of Defense as as the exemplar. I think a lot of folks say, "Hey, I sell to defense," like it is a singular customer. When in reality, there are hundreds of buying centers, 
millions of end users and thousands of sort of entities and organizations um, who all behave different by different sort of have different sort of priorities. When you talk about sort of that, that outs, outsized gain in productivity and sort of the power that, you know, machine learning or LM or whatever it may be can offer, where are you seeing one resistance from either, hey, I don't really, maybe I don't understand it or it seems too good to be true or the security side of it? Because as we think about sort of that enterprise approach, I think you're right. How do we kind of lift all tasks and make, make the entity or the enterprise more efficient? How do we start to build trust in, especially across sort of a, a customer segment that is relatively no fail in their mission set and their need for technology? I mean, I think at the heart of this, this is this is this is never a technology problem. You know, a, a lot of what we we talk about from from certainly the the sort of up and coming emerging tech industry, the problems we're encountering in defense and national security are are what we would call solved problems. We recognize them as challenges that exist elsewhere. Maybe the outcomes aren't as poignant as defense mission sets, but they they resemble solved problems. And so, you know, it, it, this to me therefore is ends up being an understanding, education, and cultural challenge. It's, you know, the demand signal from my perspective, both in the UK and the US, is clear from our senior commanders, uh, from, the, from the political top all the way through to those very senior stars. The adoption demand signal is absolutely there. What you're then getting into is the kind of bureaucracy of the system that then sort of fights itself. It's not that anyone in the system wants to see the downfall of the system. They're all, they all want to see success, but they're just, they're just handcuffed with, with un- lack of understanding, um, perhaps a bit of a fear. Uh, that they don't understand it, but then the processes the processes don't help them to adopt. And certainly, I, I think how we build that 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 trust and start start to break down some of those barriers, and kind of I, I, this is going to be counterintuitive uh, for a former soldier who who understands the importance of the operator, the warfighter. But actually, I'd like to see defense organizations start with some of the more boring tasks. You know, the AI works in some of these boring tasks, and these tend to be back office tasks that can automate efficiencies. If you're doing that in a headquarters, say a divisional or core headquarters, where actually the outcome uh, is not particularly tactically timely or, or critical, actually what you do with a whole generation of staff officers and commanders is begin to educate them on how these things are developed, how they deploy, and how they work, and what the outcomes mean. So, so actually, and this is something that we're, we're, we're gaining a lot of traction in, certainly the, the British military, is that actually sometimes leave the poor soldier pilot sailor alone. They're actually fantastic at their jobs. They're the best in the world. Actually, let's not overload them with this absolutely amazing new tech. It will get there. Let's actually reform the headquarters and then actually get the commanders understanding how this thing deploys. And then they'll self-generate the ideas, right? If you can see this in a back office function, and then you sort of self-extrapolate to say, hey, wouldn't this be great for a, for a J2 mission? Wouldn't this be great to do it? Yes, it would. And then actually they're leading themselves. Well, I think that's, it's the thinking of, hey, if I'm pushing technology forward, if I push it as forward as like the tactical operations center, instead of always this fascination with, I can put, you know, tech X or tech, or tech Y on an operator, in an operator's hand, there's an information overload, there's a tech overload, there's weight issues, there's all sorts of issues there. But if you're enabling sort of decision-making to your points, starting in the back office and then incrementally sort of moving closer, right? Pushing out to the edge could be, you know, a forward operating base, an operations center. It doesn't have to always be sort of miniaturized down to, you know, some bionic monocle sitting on a future soldier somewhere. And I think we've, 
we've programmatically in like defense and national security become really fascinated with like this super soldier concept. But also this is a journey, right? You know, the way we develop software, you know, we're not trying to jump straight to end capability, but that's how defense, you know, that, that's exactly how you buy a tank. You know, you, you don't buy a tank and expect on the first day to say, well, it's not really going to work. You know, don't worry, this is a bit of a beta. Yeah, here's uh, a turret. I'll, yeah, get, I'll yeah, get to you the know, rest tomorrow. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's not going to cut it. Uh, and so defense has procured capabilities for, you know, for decades on completed high, you know, high standard requirements. And that thing needs to work day one. You know, software doesn't get developed like that. It's iterative. You know, I want to be working with the customer on a continually improving basis. I want to be delivering and surprising them every two weeks. So, you know, the whole point is you can't do that with, a, with an operator who needs it to work now. And also the way that AI has developed or, or, or other commercial software systems is that we've had clear demand signals from commercial sector. So we know what the challenge is and we've developed against it. Yeah, actually defense, notwithstanding what I've said about the commander saying we need to adopt AI, those, those demand signals haven't been clear to the vast majority of the commercial sector. It's only guys like you and I who come from this world who understand how to translate that, who then sort of get, get behind this, which is why we've got such refined AI tools in every other sector, because the software industry has responded to that. Some of these tasks, which I call the sort of future unsolved challenges, are going to take a lot of time and thinking to actually develop systems that solve those challenges. So let's solve the things that we've already cracked. Let's get adoption. Solve things we can get data access to yeah. as well. There's some of those future problems that data is just not stored no. in, in any fashion of usability, right? It's and that's how, that's how we start building trust. Yeah. You know, so you can start seeing this working and then you can start sort of then, you know, actually then sort of translating them into the, into the things that are really, really tricky future, exquisitely defense needs. So, you know, as you talk about the, the challenge of, you know, trust and sort of starting in the right spot in that, in that customer sort of journey or life cycle or, you know, the right personas, you know, pull that back, you know, to like the 100,000, 50,000 foot view. And for the folks that are listening, that are looking in and saying, hey, you know, I can see some signs that it feels like defense tech is becoming a viable market. I'm seeing some private capital moving. I'm seeing language coming from different legislative bodies, sort of, you know, different executives. What does, what does AUKUS mean for, you know, the, the, the possibility of partners and allies driven like collaborative tech development, you know, actual interoperability, I guess, give me, if you've got an optimistic vision, let's take that. If it's a pessimistic, let's take that. But you know, I think we see it in the media a lot. You know, the subs is the easy sort of pillar one, right? Nuclear's got it. Pillar two is the, the one where defense historically struggles, right? When we talk about, you know, bits and bytes, we, we have a very difficult time sort of wrapping arms around what that is. So what are you thinking on pillar two? What are you thinking on sort of the way forward the next couple of years? What's that look like? Yeah, well, you know, let me let me bring that to life in the way that I think about it. So I think I think AUKUS, uh, you know, as a concept, as a partnership and alliance, probably affords all of us across those three nations, and, and indeed any nations that may sort of you know kind of join join that gang in the future. Uh, I, I'm sure this won't be limited to a to a three way. Uh, this is this is a huge opportunity for all of our three nations. And, and why do I say that? What have we got in the West uh, that maybe our adversaries don't have? We got some pretty good friends around the world. And we get on, we share culture, we share values, we share standards. And for me, in a military defense and national security sense, that's what AUKUS is really saying, is actually we are three developed leading nations who want to stand together and deal with the challenge of the next couple of decades. Um, and then going back to what I said about software and technology, software and technology doesn't recognize these national boundaries. 
you know, talent is not evenly distributed around the world. If the UK has a particularly clever uh, technology, why can't that be used as a capability across the alliance? We got, to, we, got, we got to sit on this seesaw together because, you know, no matter how powerful uh, uh, the US economy or defense is, you, you can't sit on that seesaw alone when it comes to China. We have got to be there with you, sitting on that seesaw, absolutely uh, creating that deterrent effect. And so for me, AUKUS Pillar 2, the one thing we're not getting right, whilst this is a great opportunity, this is the optic through which we should be prosecuting this, uh, we've done nothing tangible. Right, we and we have got to get on with this. We are two years into this. What have we done? And I think the challenges here is that maybe uh, our political and policy leaders don't know what to demand from us. Therefore, I think you know this is a call for industry to get up, demonstrate how we would interpret this because we collaborate all the time. You know, you and I work with hundreds of other software companies to do what we do to produce our capabilities. We're very used to integrating from API upwards. We're used to alliances. So I think what it is for us in this new emerging uh, community of tech, uh, defense tech startups, is we've got to demonstrate to those political leaders what AUKUS Pillar 2 looks like from our perspective. And that means collaborating, as we're already doing across boundaries, and actually showing what an integrated, collaborative software capability looks like with as many of us as possible. Yeah. I, I love the answer of, Hey, this has effectively created an opportunity for industry to take an active leadership role in sort of the, the making the policy real, right? The practical application of Pillar 2 and what is the art of the possible. And then let's actually show what can be delivered. Yeah, um, and, and at, ra at a rapid speed, right? And this is, you know, we, we have got to get on with this because that window is closing, you know? And as sadly as we've seen in Ukraine, you know, when, when you get into contact in a national sense, your ability to continue transforming and innovating, whilst I'm taking nothing away from what the Ukrainians are doing in that hard-fought conflict on the ground, you, you naturally limit your ability to transform. You've got to do your major transformation out of contact. We are currently out of contact, but that window is closing. Therefore, I think the onus is now on industry to show that leadership, partner closely with the users, show them what's in the art of the possible, and inspire them to demand more from us. Yeah, I, I love that answer. So we've got a bunch of kind of interesting spots all over this, right? Talk a little bit about what you guys are working on. Talk a little bit about, you know, productivity and sort of vertical integration versus horizontal in terms of sequencing. Talk about how to, how to think about pushing tech down to the edge. It's where to start, what that journey. You know, I hear a lot about patience and context and the importance of really just understanding the environment we're in, the end users. So that sort of, you know, that call for empathy. And then we talk about policy, sort of setting a, setting a framework that we can go action on. So we've, we've essentially made the board, right? The board set, we've got the policy that we need to order to go do stuff. We've got, and we're building the right constituencies to go push forward. Um, two sort of questions is, the first one is, I've got a whole bunch of US sort of ISVs that are looking, saying, hey, how do I get smarter on what's happening in, you know, MOD or UKIC or sort of like just UK official, where's a good place for them to go look? Where should I direct them aside from, you know, RIP your DMs? So <laughs> where do I point them? How do I get them smart? I mean, this, is, this is still a challenge, right? Because um, the one thing I'd like to see is, is the non-traditional tech companies actually finding their way to the front door, being able to get through the front door and being able to actually stand a conversation and survive, survive that. 
that is still very difficult. Um, I think the US are doing it better through organizations like DIU. Uh, I think things like the SIBA programs, experimentations are already helpful. Um, so I guess the answer is, as a generic answer in all of our militaries or, or government organizations, you've got to find that kind of experimental unit that affords you the kind of the first breadcrumb of engagement. Uh, and if you don't come from this, uh, this, this background, you're going to have to educate yourself pretty rapidly on, on you know, the language is different. The abbreviations are challenging. The systems are alien to anything you've ever done before. Yeah, there's a huge localization barrier. So, so find, find those sort of much more innovative pockets, of which there are countless, like, you know, be it AFWorks, Softworks, the DIU, they're all good. And they have their equivalents in the UK. Uh, so things like the UK's Defense AI Center is a great place. The Foundry. These are all new creations by the current generation of leaders that are all just affording that. You know, they're showing a better front door. Come on in, come have an experimentation, and you know, and and, and they're little bite-sized programs. You know, what what the companies are going to need though is go from bite-sized program and experiment into into more major engagements. But the, it does give it does give the ability to kind of come in the front, come in the front door. And actually, look, you know, we were at DSCI last week in London, and um, there were more young non-traditional companies there than I've ever seen before. You know, that's 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 a good sign. Yeah, I thought it was awesome at DSCI. Shameless plug for that is, <laughs> but I mean, Stratcom, UK Stratcom had the emerging tech hub with a bunch of ISVs all co-located with MOD. Or, like that was tremendous. You don't see that a lot where it was very intentional around that emerging tech hub with the MOD and the UK IC sort of emerging tech folks yep. all on the same section of the floor together. Just yeah. doing informal conversations. Yeah, and, and then the UK is getting that really collaborative. So, so it's not just defense. You know, there, there's other government departments yeah, I mean, involved NCAA, in that. All them, yeah. And so, so that was great to see. You know, and Stratcom are really leading the way. Uh, Stratcom's still a relatively young organization in the UK system, but the the two commanders of Stratcom that have come through certainly are really, really driving and pushing for this. But I, but I, but I'm not going to let them off the hook. You know, we, we, you know, a large international organization will be used to running thousands of relationships with thousands of tech companies, particularly software companies. They will run hundreds of proof of concepts every year. We're still nowhere near that scale. All right. So that brings to the last question. Again, sort of talked about the organizations, talked about go-to-market, talked about policy, talked about broader collaboration. Rob, you're king for a day. Wave a wand, change anything, and it's going to work. It's going to stick. So no caveats needed. What's something as we're looking sort of across AUKUS and across these markets and across that relationship between, you know, commercial or emerging technology and national security, what's the thing you change right now and why? The one thing I'd love to do if I was, if I was king for a day, you know, this is the magic one moment. You can't just stand on your pedestal and demand policy saying, we've got to adopt AI. We want to be a science and technology superpower. This is already important. You've got to adopt every single department, every single team, every organization needs to be using. And it's easy at the moment. These things are so accessible. I, I, I heard a fact yesterday, 80% of the American population have used a, uh, an LLM or, or, or a generative model. That's outstanding. You know, look at the adoption of ChatGPT. You know, we've got to 100,000 in like four days or something, or two, two weeks. Government departments, every organization, every military unit has got to play and experiment and adopt. That's the only way we're then going to move this on. Do it in a safe place. You know, do it in somewhere where you know you can really truly experiment, break it, work out what it does well, work out what it doesn't do well. Uh, adopt. Government needs to. The demand signal cannot be just spoken; it needs to be shown. If our governments were to adopt at that scale, you would see a massive influx of investment capital. 
innovation, entrepreneurs wanting to start more companies to solve more problems. The demand signal. A rallying cry to cut through innovation theater with a broadsword is what I'm hearing. You can't just say it, you got to do it. Yep. I love that. And there's a better way to end is sort of a call to action on, hey, deeds, not words. So look, thank you, Rob, as always. I, uh, I enjoy every time we get to spend some time together. I think this is one of the few without a pint or a, uh, a cocktail here. Yeah, it's a bit early on the Friday yeah. for that. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a ton. Thanks a ton for making the time. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And uh, Rob, remember to check out Adarga AI and uh, take a look at what they're working on. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.